To live a life of good conscience and conviction and courage requires Christ. It requires following in the pattern and the path that he has set before us. That we trust his ways above our own. And we seek his good. And ultimately, when we seek his good, we will find our good. This morning, we're going to step into Acts chapter 23. And so if you'd stand with me, I'm going to invite Kayla to come on up. She's going to read for us this morning. So you can be turning there as she makes her way up. Acts 23. Acts 23, verses 1 through 11. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by him said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, oh, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say, there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when... The dissension became violent. The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. You may be seated. Thanks, Kayla. number of years back, um, my family and I were, were celebrating. My mom had just graduated college, and so my kids and everybody, and Rachel, we were all up at Lake Comby um, just celebrating, and we, I had grown up fishing. That was something my grandpa had taught me to do, my uncle had taught me to do, but my kids had not really experienced much fishing. We were in San Jose, and there's not a whole lot of places to fish right around there, and so we're out on the dock, and, and Asher's off doing his own thing, and Ella's doing her own thing, and I'm teaching Ephraim when he was, he was little. And so we're just talking through, okay, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to cast this line out there. There's a hook on there, and there's a worm. There's a fish that's going to get on there. When it catches, we're going to reel it in, and then we're going to take it off together, right? I was just trying to set the expectations for my son who'd never been fishing and make sure that he was as prepared as he could be for what was going to transpire should he catch anything. Well, he cast it out there, and then it was like the first or second. It was pretty soon after. He throws it in there real quick, you know, just bluegill jumps right on him. Boom, he feels that pole, and he's, he's feeling the fight, and he's looking at me like, 
I'm doing it. You know, he's all excited and he starts reeling it in. And it was at that point as he reeled it in, he suddenly saw that fish in the water where everything changed. Uh, he, he suddenly just, he, he looked at me and he just dropped the pole, right? And, and then he just tore off the dock crying, right? Like he's just, just weeping, just off the dock. And I'm like, grab the pole, right? Because I don't want that to go. And I, I pull on the fish and I'm like showing, I'm like, oh buddy, look, we did it. And he's like, no, we didn't. You know, he didn't want no part in it. Right? What's funny is now he's the one who's like, when I catch something, he's like, dad, can I take it off for you? Like he's all about touching them and being all over. But in that moment, I had I'd prepped him for everything. So I thought, but the, the reality and the experience of it was very different than what he had expected that it would be. He knew that our aim was to catch a fish, that we were going to confront the beast face to face, right? That we would bring it in. And he knew we'd set that expectation. And still in that moment, knowing this and experiencing it were two very different things. And I think for so many of us, as we walk through life, it's that tension that we all feel. We can, we can know what it means to, to love Jesus, to follow him. But then when we experience the pain of life, well, that feels a little bit different than what we expected when we gave our lives to him. And how do we navigate that tension? See, when Jesus spoke to the disciples, he told them, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now again, we hear this, we take comfort in this, we can know this, but experiencing this, living this, walking through this is a whole other story. Because in the face of tribulation, in the face of trial, we can lose our courage we can even begin to settle for a lesser way of life. So my question for us is how, how do we have the courage to move forward in the face of tribulation? How do we live a life of congruence? Meaning that even in the hardships of life, we trust the goodness of the gospel more than we maybe trust our own desires, wills, or wants. How do we step forward with a courage and a conviction and hardship and live according to the way of Jesus? Well, in this, this passage and really in the life of Paul, I feel like we see this play out over and over again. And what we're looking at this morning, we're going to see where we pull our power from, where we pull our strength from, and how we can have courage going forward. And so just to back up a little bit and give a little context, let's go back to verse 30 of Acts 22. And it says this, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Now, if you were with us last week and you've been trailing along, you know what happened last week was that Paul was, was in the midst of the fray. Uh, he's in the temple and someone accuses him of bringing a Gentile into the temple. Everything gets crazy. He gets beaten down, pulled from the temple, and suddenly a Roman tribune steps in to save his life. Uh, really not to save his life, but just to keep the peace. But he's taking Paul out of the, They chain him up. They're whisking him up the stairs. He gets about halfway up the stairs, and he's like, hold on, I want to say something. The guy's like, okay, go for it. And so he turns around, and he begins to share his story. He begins to share his testimony. He builds, builds bridges with those who are coming to accuse him and actually want to 
take his very life and he proclaims of just the, the radical change he's experienced now that he has come to follow Jesus and he begins proclaiming that he was sent to the Gentiles. It was the, at that moment that they just lost their minds. They wanted to kill him again. So the, the tribune just takes him into the barracks, into the Antonio Fortress. And in there, he's like, okay, we've got to get to the bottom of this. We've got to understand what's going on. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and just beat him, and we'll get the truth out of him, right? And so they string him up. They're getting all ready to do that. And Paul's like, listen, I'm a Roman citizen. He's like, oh, we can't beat you now. And so now he's got to figure out another way to get to the bottom of what's going on. What's this rift between all these people? And so that's where we show up here. This tribune, he's gathering together the chief councils and the, the priests to come together and, and talk with Paul because he wants to discern what is going on. This isn't a formal trial at this point. This isn't part of the legal process. This is just gathering some information. But this council, this group that he's gathering here is the Sanhedrin. This is the highest court of, of the Jewish officials, the Jewish leaders. And the Sanhedrin would be a mix of both Pharisees and Sadducees. It would include about 71 men. The, the leader of this would be the high priest at the time who would reside over any uh, proceedings. And, and they considered this Sanhedrin to be both the political leaders of Jerusalem uh, and also the religious leaders of Jerusalem. They would work alongside Rome to try and keep the peace, but also to, to maintain their power. And this is where Paul is brought now before this group of leaders to, to have a conversation and to get to the bottom of, of what this rift is so that the Roman tribune could know what charges to bring against Paul. And so here he is, he's set before his captors once again with kind of an, an open dialogue. And so he jumps right in, ever willing to, you know, win friends and influence people. And Paul, looking intently at the council, said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, what we first notice here is Paul is addressing the leadership of the, the Jewish leaders here, the highest rank. And how is he addressing them? Brothers, equals, I'm with you. I was one of you, brothers. I have lived my life before God in all good consciousness up to this day. That's how he starts. He's saying, before God, I've lived blamelessly. Before God, I've, I've lived cleanly. I've pursued to live out my convictions of what I know that he has called me to. That is how I have strove to live. But what Paul is not stating here when he says, I, I've lived in all good conscience up to this day, he's not saying I've followed my inner Jiminy Cricket and done the best that I can. What he's saying is I've lived a life that has matched my convictions. What he knows to be true is what he has sought to, to live by. Now, Paul knows he's not perfect. He's not proclaiming that he's done everything right, but he sought to live by the faith that he proclaims. And when we speak of, of conscience, we often think of the, the internal dialogue in our head of what is right or what is wrong. What is the good or moral decision to make in this moment? It's the, that thing that guides us. And when we get off, we, we feel it internally. And Paul spends a lot of his writings in 1 Corinthians, also in Romans, speaking to this idea of, of conscience. But the end game, the goal is not just to be a good moral person. No, it's to live a life in congruence with the gospel that's aligned with the conviction of belief in the gospel to the glory of God. This is how he sought to live in, in cleanliness before the Lord and in good conscience before God was to put on the very mind of Christ. 
that his way of thinking would be based not on his own view of how things should be, but on Christ's view of how things should be. This is what Paul was stating of like, I've, I've put on the mind of Christ and that is how I have strove to live. If you've been reading along with us as we've gone through the, the scripture over this last year, this last week, we began to read through Timothy, the letter to, to Timothy that Paul is writing. And at one point in Timothy, uh, Timothy 1.18, Paul says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And what he's saying here is, is, Timothy, I want you to live holding tight to the faith, the trust that you have in Jesus, but also to live with a good conscience before him, meaning that the faith that you place in him is aligning to the way in which you live. That's what it means to have a, a good or a clear conscience. As one theologian puts it, it means that we act in conformity with our convictions. So again, for Paul to live with a clean or a good conscience it means that he, he preserves his integrity of his person by uh, avoiding inner dissonance, which means he's living in total congruence to the gospel, that the gospel is his guide and his standard. And in the same way for us to have good conscience before the Lord is to allow the gospel to be our guide and our standard, having put on the mind of Christ, living to the glory of God. Now, what we all know and what we've all experienced is when, when we feel it, our conscience seems to convict us and this is the beauty of those who've called upon the name of Jesus, that we have the very spirit of God that now resides in us. So when we take a step that is other than the path of God, when we start to walk outside the bounds of what he's calling us to, we have conviction that comes through the spirit. And we have a moment where we can repent. We can turn back towards him to align ourselves with him again. And so Paul is coming before this group and he begins by saying, brothers, I've lived before God in all good conscience to this day. Well, this is a bold and dramatic statement. In verse two, we see that Ananias did not take kindly to it. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. See, in response to Paul's proclamation of living in good consciousness before the Lord, Ananias looks to quiet him. Because you see the tension here, that if Paul is living cleanly before the Lord, well, his life is in opposition to what this group of men are proclaiming. And so if Paul is in good conscience before the Lord, then where does that leave these guys? Kind of shines a light on maybe they're chasing the wrong things. And so Ananias wants to hear no more of this. And he has somebody else strike him on the mouth to keep him quiet. Now, Ananias, who was the high priest at this time, was a, a Sadducee, and he was not one who was opposed to using violence. He's also known as a very greedy man. And in this moment, he quiets Paul because he wants to hear him no longer. Verse 3, then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Here we get a little bit of heated Paul, and I kind of like heated Paul, right? Like he's just, he's coming right back. Like he just got hit in the face, and he's like, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, right? <laughs> How many of us have wanted to say that to someone? <laughs> and when we hear this, what do we think? What does this bring back? The words of Jesus, doesn't it? When he was speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. And so here, Paul is calling out, you, you, 
you're commanding them to strike me, which is against the law. Currently, I'm still an innocent man before you. But God is going to strike you, Ananias. You whitewashed wall. You one who's covering over the decay and making it look like it's so nice, but underneath I can smell that stench that is you. So how dare you? A whitewashed wall has allusions back to the prophet Ezekiel, where he shared the same idea in Ezekiel 13, 10 through 14. This idea that we like to, to posture ourselves, present ourselves in a manner where we look like we have it all together, but underneath things are rotten to the core. And so Paul is saying, you have the appearance of goodness, but you are nothing that is good. And then verse 4, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And this gets interesting here. Okay, we're going to walk through this, but this gets interesting. Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now, what's unclear in this moment because we don't have tone we don't have full uh, imagery of what's going on here and the full makeup of what's going on is did Paul know he was speaking to the high priest or not because we we read these words and there's actually a couple ways we could interpret them his response could be conciliatory like "Ooh, I'm sorry I didn't realize or it could also be condemning See, Paul quotes from Exodus 22 28 he says you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people what's Paul doing again here He's showing he, he knows his stuff. He's a good, observant Jew. He knows the law. He knows the Torah. And when they act out of line with it, he can call them on it. And when he acts out of line with it, he can call himself on it. But what's happening here? Did Paul not recognize who Ananias was? And there's scholars who disagree with this. Some just say, you know what, Paul had been out of Jerusalem for so long that maybe he just didn't know that Ananias was now the high priest. And so when he was talking with him, he didn't realize that. Uh, for me personally, I think that's the least likely. I think Paul was pretty well in the know. He had met with the Jerusalem leaders. He would have probably most likely known that Ananias was in charge. So I have a hard time saying it was that one. Some say Paul's eyesight wasn't very good. And so since this wasn't a full legal uh, proceeding that the high priest wouldn't be dressed in full regalia and so he couldn't quite recognize him since his eyesight was bad, maybe he just called it like kind of a fuzzy image and he was just ready to pick a fight uh, and, and that's what transpired there. And, and there could be something to that. But I also think what, what Paul is seeming to do in this moment is to say, I, I, didn't, I didn't really, I'm sorry, I didn't realize he was the high priest because he certainly doesn't act like one. And so there's a tone underneath that. There's a recognition of a high priest. That's, that should be a man of good character. A man who's pursuing the Lord. And yet what we know of Ananias is that he was, he was greedy. He was, he was violent. He sought to keep his power however he could. Character was not what he was known for. And what we also see play out is that when Paul said, God will strike you those words would come true. Some say it was some eight years later when the, the Jewish revolts began that some of the zealots came in and one of the first people that they sought to take down and to kill was Ananias for all the trouble that he had caused. And so in this moment, Paul responds back. 
kind of laying claim to what he's seeing before him. Ananias, this merciless and cruel and greedy high priest who sought to hold on to power, probably felt the sting of just how accurate Paul's accusation of him being a whitewashed wall was. But this meeting continued. It it wasn't over. They were just kind of warming up in some ways. The niceties out of the way. Verse 6, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Let me just stop here really quick. Paul is taking and examining this room. He's got the the leaders in front of him, these men of import in front of him. And he's recognizing that he's got some Pharisees, some Sadducees. Now, Paul was a, a Pharisee. And most likely at some point, we don't have full confirmation of this, but most likely knowing his role and what he did, there was probably a time where he was on the Sanhedrin, that he would have been one of the ones. But he also would have known that the Sadducees were the majority, the Pharisees were most the time the minority. And the Sadducees, they held their authority, they held their title through lineage, through birthright. They were seen as the more elitist of the two, and they worked with Rome uh, more fluidly to maintain their power. And the Sadducees held to a very strict reading of the Torah, that they took the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures to be definitive. That's what they needed in order to interpret the law. They didn't hold the oral law as authoritative. But most importantly for this discussion that's about to unfold, they did not believe in a resurrection. Now, Pharisees, on the other hand, they did hold firmly to the idea of resurrection. And this was part of the problem that Jesus presented to the Pharisees. See, the Sadducees could not comprehend the resurrection of Jesus because they did not believe that it was possible. So to dismiss Jesus was was really easy for them. The Pharisees, however, they believed in resurrection. But if they admitted that Jesus was resurrected, even though there was no body to be found, then they would be admitting his Messiahship. But to deny his resurrection or the possibility of resurrection would be to deny a fundamental belief that the Pharisees held dear, that resurrection is possible. The Sadducees had sought to trap Jesus at one point in this whole conversation. If you just want a good laugh, read Matthew 22, 23, because they were unable to do it. And Paul perceiving this in the midst of this group, perceiving the divide that's, that's before him, he just decides to lob up just a simple conversation, simple question, but really what he's doing in this moment is just lobbing up a live grenade because he knows the implications that are about to explode. So he cried out to the council, in the council, brothers, again, brothers, I am a Pharisee. He's he's stating who I am. Again, I'm a Pharisee. I'm not a Sadducee. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a son of a Pharisee. Now, we don't have any record that Paul's actual father was a Pharisee, but this doesn't dismiss this idea because anybody who trained under a rabbi saw themselves as as a son, a spiritual son of their father, their spiritual father who would have been that rabbi. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, what Paul is doing is both clever and true. Because what he's saying is, is he held, he's being held on trial. Why? For the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But by centering and framing the conversation around the hope and the resurrection of the dead, 
He's now aligned himself with the Pharisees. He set himself against the Sadducees, but more importantly, he takes the attention off of himself for the moment, and he puts the attention on the question of resurrection. And he's a slippery fellow. I mean, suddenly it's like he's out of there, and he's like, well, what do you guys think about resurrection? Go. Right. Now, when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Immediately, they, they play their parts. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. Now watch this. They've just all been coming. Their common enemy was Paul, and now he throws this question out, and suddenly we see a Pharisee who stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? Suddenly they're like arms around Paul. All the Pharisees are like, we're with this guy. He's our guy, right? When suddenly they wanted to kill him just moments before. And when the dissension became violent... When the dissension became violent, the conversation rose to such a level that there was fear that Paul was going to get ripped limb for limb. Now, there's, there's accounts going back in history of moments where the Pharisees, Sadducees, and some of the religious leaders of the day, they would get to a point where they were throwing stones at each other. So violence wasn't something new in this moment. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him back into the barracks, bring him back up to the Antonio Fortress. Now, we have no idea where Claudius, the, the Roman tribune, is in this. We don't know if he was stationed there, if he was watching this all unfold, if he was just out of earshot, but whatever is happening here, he sees that things are about to get out of hand. Paul is about to be put in the middle again, torn limb from limb, and so he gets him out of there as fast as he can. The divide had grown so great between the two groups so fast that Paul's life was once again in danger. Now, when we read this, and as we've been reading through Acts, there's just kind of this pattern that we find ourselves going through that we can start to become numb to of all the different trials and tribulations that Paul faces that we can kind of forget the humanity of it all in the midst of it. So I just want us to slow down for just a second and just imagine, put yourself in Paul's shoes for just a moment and just ride the roller coaster of the past few days that he's experienced. Again, he was called out in the temple. And why was he in the temple? He had gone to the temple for a purity ritual that he had paid for four others to take a vow and go through. Why? Because he was trying to create and build a bridge between the Jerusalem brothers and sisters that he was showing. He was an observant Jew, but he was still living for Christ and that they could come together. He was trying to make amends to bring these two sides together. And at great cost to himself, he, he paid for some of that. And as he's going through that, someone calls him out and says, you've brought a Gentile into the temple. You don't even proclaim to follow the law. You teach against the law. And the crowd got around him so much so that they began beating him before the tribune could even arrive. Battered, bloodied, bruised. He's running up the stairs. He's still got a black eye forming. And he's like, wait, I got to say something. Speaks to the crowd once again. Shares his testimony hoping that maybe this will be the moment that his brothers and sisters who he is so long to pull in and say that we are one in Christ, that he has been fighting for all of this time. He turns to them hoping this will be it. They'll see that even in, in my, my batteredness, 
I'm still thinking of them. I'm going to jail right now, and I'm still trying to speak to them. And he, he shares just what Jesus had done for his life, but they could not hear it. They get into a frenzy again, almost beaten by a Roman centurion. He's brought before the Sanhedrin now. In this moment, the conversations start, and before he can even get through the first answer, he's struck in the face. And now he's standing between the two sides as they're ready to rip him in half. He's taken out again, and he's still in chains. He's still being arrested by the Roman tribune in this moment. They're still trying to figure out what is going on in this moment. So once again, Paul is finding himself in prison. And all he has been trying to do is proclaim the goodness of who Jesus is. I mean, he even said it earlier. I lived my life before God in good conscience. I'm clean before him. Whatever opportunity he's given me, I keep stepping into over and over again. And can you imagine just for a moment what's going through his mind as he's like, here I am again. When does this end? Does this end? Is this my end? All the questions that had to be rifling through his mind. And it's on the heels of all of this that we read the words of verse 11. That the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now again, there's a real temptation for us just to speed read past this. But in light of what's been transpiring, just let this sink in just for a moment, the, the magnitude of what is transpiring here. By anyone's estimation, Paul has had a pretty rough couple of days. Right? Life threatened, most likely still nursing the wounds of his beating. Every step of the way, everywhere he turns, there's someone who wants him dead. And I know we've seen this before in Paul. And so we just kind of expect him, just rise up again, buddy. You can do it. We believe in you. Because opposition just continues to meet him squarely in the face. But this is why I find it so moving that in this moment, when we don't know what Paul's thinking, we have nothing other than the following night, the Lord stood by him. Jesus has come to Paul in his hour of need. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments in your life where everything seems to be spiraling. Maybe grief's overtaken you. Maybe you're just so overwhelmed you can't even kind of take a step forward. And what you remember in that moment is not always what someone said to you, but just their presence. That they came and just reminded you that they were there that you weren't facing this alone. And in this moment, we see Jesus himself coming, standing beside Paul. I'm with you. I'm with you. In his hour of need, Jesus stood with him. But what I love is Jesus didn't just stand next to Paul. He also spoke over him. And what are the words that he speaks to Paul? He says, take courage. Now the Greek word here 
is one that Jesus often says, take courage. It's actually one word altogether. And it can be translated a couple of different ways. Sometimes it's take courage. Other times it's take heart. And these are the same words that Jesus spoke to the disciples when he greeted them halfway across the Sea of Galilee and they thought he was a ghost and they were all panicking and he said, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. It's the same words that Jesus spoke to the paralytic who had been brought in by his friends seeking healing. And Jesus said, take heart, my son, for your sins are forgiven. It's the same words that Jesus spoke to the woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years and just clutching to his garment, hoping for some sort of healing. And when Jesus felt the power go out of him, he knew something had happened and he turned and he looked at her and he said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And it's the same word he spoke to the disciples before he would face his own death. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And now Jesus, standing alongside his bruised and bloodied friend, Jesus looks at Paul and says, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. In this moment, it is the presence of Christ that allows Paul to draw a renewed strength. Take courage, for just as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you will testify about me in Rome. What what does this mean? Well, Paul had to be wondering, am I ever going to get out of Jerusalem? Am am I going to get out of here alive? And Jesus is like, yes. Not only that, but you're going to get to testify about the facts of who I am in Rome. That word testify, it's a word we've looked at before already as we've gone through the book of Acts, but it's important for us to remember that in the Greek, that root word there for testify is martus. It's the same word that we get our English word martyr from to testify, to be willing to stand for something, to, to live as a, as a living witness to the facts of who Jesus is. That's what Paul has been doing and that's what he will continue to do. And it's not gonna get easier, but Jesus is reminding Paul that I am with you and you will be a living witness to the facts of who I am in Rome. And I love the way that Jesus even says this. Paul, you have testified to the facts, the reality of who I am, that I came and I took on human form, that I died in your place, but I didn't stay there. I rose again, that all who call on me will have life in me. He is the Messiah. He is the truth. He is the reality by which we base all reality. He doesn't say, hey, Paul, I want you to go and testify to your truth. No, testify to the facts of who I am. This is the reality of who I am, that I came, I died, and I rose again, conquering death, overcoming your sin, sorrow, and shame on your behalf. That's who I am. Continue to testify and live to that truth, Paul, for I am with you. And you will be my living witness, my testimony in Rome. So take courage. Your work is not done, your pain is not unseen, and my presence is with you. How many of us have longed for this moment with Jesus? 
Because in this room, I know that there are trials, there are tribulations, there are moments that each of us has stepped into the unknown, unsure of what is going to come next. And it can feel so defeating, so overwhelming, so lonely. The way forward can begin to feel like a bog that's just weighing you down and you can't even get your feet out of it to move forward. It's that realization that suddenly you knew we were catching fish, but that's a lot bigger fish on the end of the line than I was expecting. And running in the opposite direction sometimes feels like the easiest thing to do. In my own life, I remember a season that required much of me in every way, and not just of me, but my family. And the only assurance that we had was that God was with us, and the only vision we had was a path that led to fog. Super reassuring, right? But in the midst of that, there was this reminder to each of us as we walked that path that it wasn't just about arriving at the the destination, but it was the obedience in the process. It was walking in the midst of the pain and the trial and all the things that came our way and wanting to take an easier way, but trusting that God's ways were better. And by no stretch did we get it perfect. But we knew where our power in the moment came from was his presence. And the peace that we discovered was found only in his path. See, Paul is able to move forward in this moment, not in the confidence of his own abilities. No, he moves forward confident in the presence and the provision of Jesus. For Jesus had visited Paul before. We saw that in chapter 18. He'd come to him in his hour of need, and now he's, he's done it again, giving him just enough to continue forward, giving him just enough so he can take another step. So what's unfolding before us here? Well, to, to live a life of good conscience before God doesn't just mean that we, we aim to be good moral people that we strive to live that on our own. No, to live a life of good conscience and conviction and courage requires Christ. It requires following in the pattern and the path that he has set before us, that we trust his ways above our own and we seek his good. And ultimately, when we seek his good, we will find our good. And when we step into life with Jesus, we must hear the words that he has spoken to so many who have come before us, so many who came to him in time of need, so many that he met in their time of need. We hear his words over us wherever we find ourselves this morning. Take courage and take heart. For in his presence we find power. And in his path we find peace. Pray with me. Father, it is so easy when we are walking through hardships to just serve up platitudes or empty words. And Jesus, even knowing what you spoke to your disciples, which we receive, that you knew the tribulation will be all around us. We should not be surprised at the fiery trials that we experience. 
but we're able to take heart, to take courage, because you have overcome. And Lord, this morning what I ask is that you would be present to us. That you would remind us of those truths and those who are in the midst of very real pain that you would just speak to. That we hear your voice anew in these moments saying, take courage. That we would remember that we don't travel our pain alone, although at times it can feel that way. Would you keep our eyes fixed on you, on your path, following in your footsteps, taking your direction over the own uh, movings of our, our desires or our heart or the things that we think we know better? Would we just surrender ourselves to you? And in these moments where the battle seems so fierce, would you remind us that you are surrounding us, that you have us, you hold us. May these words that you spoke to Paul take root in us, to take courage, to live lives that match our faith in our actions, living clean before you, Lord. And for those who are just striving on their own right now, I pray, God, you just break them. Would you break each of us in this room that thinks we can do it without you and remind us of our desperate need of you? And that any in here who, who just need to turn are tired of striving on their own, that they would just turn to you now, call upon your name. Say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I repent of the direction I was going and I turn my heart and my life towards you, trusting in you. Father, may they receive true life that comes in you. We love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close this time, if you're in the midst of something and you just need prayer over you, uh, we'd love to pray alongside you. We'll be right here. If you, if you are, are wrestling with what does it mean to really step into life with Jesus, we'd love to talk with you about that. You need a Bible, we've got one for you. You need some coffee, you can get that across the street too. As we close though, I just, I wanna read this over us. This is a passage from Zephaniah 3.16. Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love and he will exalt over you with loud singing. In his presence, we find power. And in his path, we will find peace. May you step forward today in his grace, in his peace. God bless you. We'll see you Wednesday night.